Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In previous lectures, we've looked at what the kingdom of God is from Genesis and Revelation, from the covenants God made with Abraham and David, from what Isaiah and the other prophets said, and from what we see in the New Testament. Now today, we are looking at the question of how this kingdom preaches, how this kingdom relates to the gospel message. And so we want to ask the question, what is the gospel of the kingdom? It's not about Jesus dying for your sins or going to heaven when you die. In fact, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is not new at all. It's, in fact, the same message that the prophets of old proclaimed, that one day God was going to make everything wrong with the world right and extend his reign from heaven to earth. Like Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this lecture, you'll see how John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Twelve, the Seventy, Philip the Evangelist, and Paul the Apostle all preached the same message about God's coming kingdom. Now, it's easy to see that after Jesus died for our sins, that the information about the cross was added into the kingdom message, but it did not replace it. And I think that's really important. So, This is Lecture 7 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 98, The Gospel of the Kingdom. This is Lecture number 7, The Kingdom Gospel Message. And to start, I would like you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. The word for gospel comes from the Greek evangelion. Within this word, there are two compound words. This little prefix here means good. And then this is actually the word angel, which you can see, right? The Greek word for gospel that's used all throughout the New Testament is the literally means good message. An angel is a messenger, right? And so the gospel is a good message It's a big deal. (laughs) The gospel is a big deal. I just want to look at three verses with you ever so quickly to describe the function of the gospel before we get into the kingdom gospel message. And so the first to consider is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 2, which says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The key part here is where it says, being saved there. You see that? The gospel is that which, if you believe it, you are saved. Getting the gospel right is a big deal. And you also see from this text that it's possible to believe the gospel and then have it do you no good. Presumably that's if you believed it and then you fell away from the faith later or you refused to live in accordance with the gospel message. But once again, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. So the gospel is that which 
enables you to be saved in a continuous sense. Another text, the second of three here, is 2 Timothy 1.10, which says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, the gospel abolishes death. That's a big deal. It's the pill of immortality. I like that. That's an Anthony Buzzardism. The pill of immortality, right? It's like medicine you take that makes it so you live forever. And then the third text uh, is Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, here's the big part, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? So, according to the Apostle Paul, in the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So getting the gospel right is huge. Because believing in the gospel results in salvation, getting the gospel right is absolutely paramount. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Is this like very uh, basic? Yeah, okay. I, I didn't know this. I didn't know what the gospel was. I had heard parts about the gospel growing up, but I just didn't use that terminology. For me, gospel was something that's true, or gospel was an account of the life of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think a lot of people think gospel is doctrine. Or gospel means doctrine, or gospel is a kind of music. What the Bible defines as the gospel is the message preached that if believed results in salvation. I mean, it's a very narrow definition. And I'm not saying that's the only definition that we find in the Bible, but that's definitely the predominant definition we find in the Bible. So I just wanted to clarify that to start. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, and ask the question, why did Jesus rebuke Peter? And I want to start here, sort of in the middle of everything, because it gets us at the question that I want to start with. So, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. Now, the key part of that verse there, that's Matthew 16, 21, is where it says, from that time, Jesus began. If you begin doing something, have you been doing it before? No. Or else you wouldn't be beginning beginning it, you would be continuing it, okay? So Jesus begins at that time, at the time of the uh, where we are in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, right? There are, does anybody know what happens in Matthew chapter 1? Jesus is born. Jesus is born, right? So Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is born. Chapter 4, he's tempted in the wilderness, right? He begins his ministry in chapter 4. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. 8, covers a lot of his miracles, and so on. 9 talks about his ministry, and right up to 15. Now in chapter 16, way later, Jesus begins to tell them about how he's going to die. He says that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the first time he talks about suffering, dying, and being raised from the dead. Chapter 16, that's a very late time, if you think about it, to start telling the disciples, hey guys, this is the plan. And here's what's even better 
and, and emphasizes this point more. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what happens here is Peter is so thrown off balance by Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. He's so confused and so disturbed by that information that, can you even imagine it? Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter sets Jesus straight. Peter says to the master, to the rabbi, to the one he's been following all around, I think you got this wrong, Jesus. This will never happen to you. Far be it from you. Peter's a tough guy. Peter's like, they try to take you, they got to go through me first, right? That's a little New York for you. All right, so verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So why in the world did Jesus rebuke Peter? He rebuked him because Peter was standing in the way of what Jesus was telling him was going to happen about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, okay? Peter was standing in the way of the plan of salvation. Now, of course, Peter didn't realize that yet, but that's exactly my point. If Jesus didn't talk about his crucifixion prior to Matthew 16, then what in the world was he preaching for the last 15 chapters? Because we do know Jesus was preaching. We do know he was going from town to town. When he first brings up his suffering, his death, his resurrection, they're outraged. So I love starting with this place. And I got this from Anthony Buzzard, who is really the master of presenting this topic. Matthew 16, 21. It's just a great place to start because it really gets people thinking, huh, I guess Jesus wasn't preaching about the cross for the first 15 chapters if in chapter 16, when he brings up the subject for the first time, everybody freaks out. <laughs> and it says from that time he began, right? So what, what do we want to do? Let's take a look at John the Baptist. Go over to Matthew chapter 3, if you would. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to do a little business in Matthew I think a lot of this, a lot of this topic is important because a lot of people that hear the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. The standard definition of the gospel in Christianity today is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Usually, not even the resurrection, to be honest. It's just the cross. It gets reduced to just the cross. Jesus died for your sins. Simple as that. Or if you want to be very specific about it. Some people will say he died as a substitute for your sins or something like that. But the gospel is so much bigger than that and so much richer than that as we're, as we're about to see. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as you recall, the kingdom of heaven is just Matthew's way of saying what? Kingdom, kingdom of God. And we had that from... That verse in Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So you have the idea of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. We also have in Matthew other instances where he substitutes heaven for God. For example, the prodigal son, when he is preparing his speech to come home, he says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Well, what do you mean? You sinned against the sky? No, he means God. You see, actually, that's in Luke. But that's, that's a, another example of this same custom of substituting heaven for God. 
And, and that, that's something that they would do. So it's not a, a kingdom in heaven, but a kingdom of God that is from heaven, as we'll see. The question is, what did Jesus preach? We just saw in Matthew chapter 3, right, that John came on the scene and Matthew summarizes his message with the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then when we get to Jesus, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, you want to go ahead and write this down under the heading, Jesus preached the kingdom. In Mark 1, 14, we read, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we have John the Baptist going before Jesus, preparing the way. What is John the Baptist preaching? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene. After John's arrested, Jesus begins his ministry. And, well, there's a little overlap there, but Jesus comes to Galilee and begins his ministry in earnest after John was arrested, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, what is Jesus saying? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Boy, that sounds just like John doesn't it? It sounds just like John. So Jesus is also preaching the kingdom, and he's saying that we should repent in light of it. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then again in verse 23, you can see that right here, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then we get to chapter 9, five chapters later, and what does it say? It says almost exactly the same thing as 4.23. Jesus went through all, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Josiah's point before was that some people think the gospel is doctrine or the gospel is Christian living. I think this clears that up, right? Because it says these are the things Jesus was doing. He was teaching in their synagogues. I think of that, I mean, it's not a synagogue sermon, but like the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's what a teaching of Jesus sounds like. It's a lot about how to live. And then proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He has that separate from teaching. So you have general teaching about what God says, and then you have the gospel message, and then you have healing. Healing is different than preaching the gospel. Yeah, healing every disease and every affliction. I think Matthew 4.23 might have had another component. No, it basically says the same thing. <laughs> so, I mean, what is Matthew telling us in the Gospel of Matthew? He's telling us that John the Baptist preached the kingdom, Jesus preached the kingdom, and we see it in Mark as well, and also in Luke 4.43. I'll just start in verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So here the big point is that Jesus says that's his purpose. That's his purpose. His purpose, they want to keep him there. They see the miracles. They, see, they hear the wisdom. They see Jesus in his authority and in his preaching, and they say, why don't you stay around for a little while? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the kind of response that you want if you're an evangelist? You go to a village, you start preaching, and they're like, hey, why don't you stick around? Let's build a church. 
And they say that to Jesus, not build a church, obviously, but they say, hey, they try to keep him from leaving them. And he said to them, I got to go. I'm sorry, I got to go. Because there are other villages that need to hear my purpose, which is to preach the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God. This word here, evangelion, is translated sometimes the gospel, sometimes they translate it good news. In Luke 5.1, is the word of God the same thing as I want to, okay, Luke 5.1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing him to hear the word of God. Yeah, that's, that's a good point you make there. So you have the word, the gospel, and then there are other synonyms, other words that mean the same thing, including the word word. <laughs> and you see that especially in Acts chapter 8. But yeah, even in Luke 5, that's a good, that's a good tie in there. The pressing to hear the word of God is probably also the gospel message there. All right, and then Luke 8.1 is the last one under the heading, Jesus preached the gospel, or the kingdom as gospel. Luke 8.1 says, Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So Jesus is a kingdom preacher. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. To many of you, I know this does not sound new or exciting, but let me tell you, this has huge ramifications, especially for Christianity today, which largely does not know about the kingdom, or if they do know about the kingdom, they reduce it to only being a present reality, and they ignore the fact that there's a future as well. And so we'll, we'll get to the implications after a little bit here. The other aspect I wanted to bring out before moving on to look at other people preaching the kingdom uh, message is that Jesus calls it a seed. And I, I think that's significant. And, and we see that really out of all places in this parable of the sower and the seed. He calls the, the, the kingdom message, he calls it the seed in Matthew 13, where he says, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. You're familiar with this parable, all of you probably, right? And you have these different results. Some of the seeds sprout up and die. Others last for a long time and produce fruit. And then when Jesus goes to explain that in verse 19, he says, and this is just the, the part I really want to focus on, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. So... Actually, I'm going to back up. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and this is something I go into in great detail in the evangelism class and probably in some other classes that other teachers do, the seed itself is not about his death and resurrection, because we know this is Matthew 13. He has not started talking about that yet. That's chapter 16. So what's the seed? The seed is the word of the kingdom, or another way to say that is the message of the kingdom. And here is a key insight. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, there's, there is some sort of problem understanding the word of the kingdom, even to this day, right? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. 
This is the, the category known as the birds in the parable, right? The sower's throwing the seed on the path, birds come down and gobble it up before it ever has a chance to germinate, before it ever has a chance to put down any roots at all, the birds come and eat it. And this is not a phenomenon that just Jesus recognizes. Of course, Jesus is the master. It should be enough for us to see it just from him. But it's also in, uh, was it 2 Corinthians 4.4? 4? You, you don't have to write this down, but even if our gospel is veiled, this is the Apostle Paul, it is veiled to those who are perishing, right? There's a sense in which you can preach the gospel, you can say the gospel, you can teach it, you can illustrate it, and people just have amigo experience. That's where my eyes glaze over. Right? And, and they're just like, uh. Right? And it doesn't sink in. And what the Apostle Paul says, very similar to Jesus and the sower and the seed, he says in their case, in the case of those who are veiled and they don't get the gospel message, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? So this, there's a spiritual warfare component to evangelism and to sharing the gospel with people. And that might explain part of why the world is so blissfully unaware of this kingdom message. But I don't think for that reason we should be discouraged. Let's take a look at the sending out of the 12. Okay, we've looked at Jesus preaching the kingdom. That's these verses here. Jesus also sends out the 12 to preach the kingdom. And we see that here in these three parallel accounts. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, Luke 9, verses 1 through 2, and Mark 6, 12. And I just want to highlight for you that they use different words to say similar things, right? And this happens frequently if you compare Gospels to each other. So in Matthew 10, 5, we read, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's the message, according to Matthew, that the 12 are commissioned by Jesus to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke, it says, And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So in the one case, it's kingdom of heaven is at hand. In another case, it's proclaim the kingdom of God. Mark is even shorter. Of course, you probably already knew that, right? That Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. So he really condenses it down. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. <laughs> so you, you see the three parallels there. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God, and repent. These are all different aspects or similar ways of saying the same thing. And then, later on, Jesus sends out the 72. And he says in Luke chapter 10, And this, the Lord appointed, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he, he grabs these 72 and he says, hey, I'm commissioning you. Pair off. Let's go. You have seen me preach. Now I tell you to go and preach, right? That's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's already done that with the 12. Now he's doing it with the 72. Now in verse 9, he says to them in his instructions to this group, this missionary commissioning, heal the sick in it, in whatever village you go, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So that's what he wants the 72 to say while they're going on their way. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, 
go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. <laughs> Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. We're going to get into the timing language here in a subsequent lecture. My focus here is rather just to point out that the message Jesus preached, the message the 12 preached, the message the 72 preached was all the same message as John the Baptist before him, which is a message about the kingdom of God. Many believe that the kingdom gospel was only provisional. Many believe that the gospel of the kingdom was necessary for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but after Jesus died, the message of the cross replaced the kingdom message. And look, the cross is awesome, it's beautiful, we believe in it, it's part of the gospel, no question about it, but it doesn't replace the kingdom. It adds to the kingdom message, right? So you wanna have both aspects and the resurrection of Jesus. And how would we go about establishing, let me ask you this, how would we go about establishing that the cross did not replace the kingdom message after Jesus died and was raised? How would we establish that? to find verses after he was dead and raised or talks about the kingdom? Yeah, if we could find some verses after he was dead and raised to talk about the kingdom, that would be definitive proof that the cross has not replaced the kingdom message, right? Because they're still preaching it even after the cross was understood. And we find that with Brother Philip in Samaria. And this is Acts 8.12. Go ahead and write that down. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Let me actually pull this up so you can see it. It says that he preached the good news of the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I love that because it tells you he still got the kingdom there and now he's also added to the kingdom message something else the name of Jesus Christ. And under that category, you've got his death for our sins and how God raised him from the dead, proving that he is the Messiah. I mean, there might be something else as well. I'm not trying to limit him, but it's, it's, it's clearly indicating that he's still preaching the kingdom, but he's also adding to it something else. And then the other scripture on this point that I would bring up is Acts chapter 19, Verse 8, Acts 19, 8, which is Paul. So we had Philip, which is Acts 8, 12, and then we have Paul, Acts 19, verse 8, in Ephesus, and it says, he, And he entered a synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So why is Paul 19 chapters into the book of Acts? Now, what happens at chapter 1 of the book of Acts? Does anybody know? Yeah, Jesus leaves. <laughs> so the crucifixion has happened, the resurrection has happened, the ascension has happened, the, even before the ascension, that he's already commissioned his apostles and said, go preach this message, starting in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? That's all happened in chapter one. We're over here in chapter 19. What in the world is he doing, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God for three months in Ephesus? if the cross has already replaced the kingdom. Well, the cross hasn't replaced the kingdom. It's, he's still preaching the kingdom. So that's Acts 19, eight, and then, all right, Acts 20, verse 24. This is, this is a really good point that we see here. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may 
finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So in verse 24 here, we have this phrase, the gospel of the grace of God. And then in verse 25, he says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And so the point here is that the gospel of grace is proclaiming the kingdom. It's the same thing. So let's take a look at 28, 23. So you see, do you see my point here that he uses interchangeably the gospel of grace with proclaiming the kingdom? Does that make sense? Okay. So 28 verse 23, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening and expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Do you see the two aspects of the message preached here? Do you see it? He's testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, right? That's just like Philip in Acts 8, 12, proclaiming the, king, the gospel of the kingdom of God and the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ. So, the information about Jesus and what he has done for us is now part of the message, but it's not replaced the previous message. And then the last verse of the whole book of Acts, last two verses is Acts 28, 30 and 31, where it says, He lived there, this is the Apostle Paul, two whole years in Rome at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. And thus the book of Acts concludes. All right, so we've seen now that Jesus was a kingdom preacher. He preached the kingdom in his early ministry. After he revealed the information about suffering and death and resurrection, his apostles thought it sounded ludicrous. It took a while, he succeeded in convincing them that was going to happen, right? And then it actually did happen, and after it happened, they came to understand the significance of his suffering and death. And then they understood that that was now part of the good news to be preached. So now, after the resurrection of Christ, we see Philip in Acts 8.12 preaching the kingdom and Christ. And we see Paul doing the same thing in Acts 19, 20, and 28. But there's another whole explanation that people have, which is, yeah, but that was the apostolic age. That was the apostolic age. Today, we don't preach that. We just preach the cross today. Well, I found a way to defeat that one too. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I love how he says this. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom. In other words, the same gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching is the gospel of the kingdom that he says before the end comes needs to be preached to the whole world as a testimony. Now let me ask you a question. All these missionary agencies that are going around the world, apart from LHI, are they preaching the kingdom message? Not likely. Probably not, right? Probably mostly not. Probably mostly they're preaching something that looks like this tract right here, which says, after death, what? And it reads, how many times have you looked into a casket and seen the face of the deceased and listened to the following statements? He, has, he sure has suffered, but he's better off now. She's at peace. 
never to suffer anymore. Dear reader, if the deceased had accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior and had been born again, these are correct statements. However, if the deceased died in a lost spiritual condition, his troubles have just begun. The instant his soul leaves his body. Man, that sounds like yesterday. Who said that? Soul leaves his body. Plato. And the Egyptians and the Norse and the Taoists and the Hindus and the Buddhists. Actually, everybody but the Bible said that, right? But in particular, Plato makes a big point of the soul leaving the body, right? And yet here we have in a Christian tract, let's see. The Fellowship Track League is the organization putting out this tract. This is track number 102 and it's free. So you can write in and get it. It says at the bottom in a very small print, all tracks free as the Lord provides not to be sold. Anyhow, this is a big time tract organization and they're, they're putting out these tracks all over the world in the English-speaking world, and they're, and they're teaching that the instant his soul leaves his body, it goes directly to hell to burn forever and ever. That's a standard Christian teaching that these people are putting out. And then up here it says, perhaps someone looked at the face of this rich man, talking about the rich man of Lazarus. And then it goes on, well, the part I really want to show you is on the back here. This is where they actually do the gospel presentation. That's the stuff they think that you have to believe in order to be saved. This is what they say. You are not promised another day on this earth. Tomorrow might be too late. Well, that's true. You never know, right? Now is the time to do something about your lost condition. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now, while there is still life in your body, will you repent of your sins? and call upon Jesus to come into your heart and save your soul, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The decision is yours. Where will your soul be when they are preaching your funeral? Your life might end before another hour passes, and your soul will be somewhere for eternity. I'm sure you've all seen this kind of language before, right? But it, it is rather shocking to see it, considering what we've been looking at about this, this kingdom. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and be confident of everlasting life in heaven? If you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please pray this prayer with all your heart. Dear God, I admit I am a sinner going to hell. I know that I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins and put my faith in the blood that you shed for me. It's confusing because he's talking to God, right? But uh, on the cross, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't theologically correct all the mistakes here. <laughs> it would just take too long. They say the blood that you shed for me on the cross to pay for all my sins. And I'll accept you as my Savior, and trust you to take me to heaven. Mm. Nice. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Okay, so this, now, it's not like I, I scoured the internet to find the one track that had terrible theology. This was just the first one that I clicked on. All right? This place, like I said, this is track 102. There are at least 101 others, and probably another 500 on top of that, with all sorts of different angles and cutesy little strategies to hook people, right? And look, 
I think tracks are just fine, right? I'm pro track. I've written tracks myself. That's not my issue. And my issue is not calling people to repentance. And my issue is not trying to scare somebody to think they're going to die. It might be a little artificial in, in today's culture to say that, but whatever. That's not my issue. My issue is talking about souls being eternal, living in heaven or in hell forever. And especially in light of this lecture here, when they finally get to present the gospel message you have to believe in order to be saved, the gospel message to them is that Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay for my sins. There is no resurrection and there is no kingdom. And they think Jesus is God, which is a whole other subject, <laughs> right? So when I said to you before, do you think missionary agencies around the world, Christian missionary agencies around the world are preaching the kingdom like Jesus said, because that's what Jesus said. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. They're not preaching this gospel of the kingdom. We have a lot of work to do among people that claim to be Christian and among people that have never heard about it, both, right? Because they just don't know about the kingdom or they think the kingdom is going to heaven. Both of those are not going to fly. However, ironically, a source as mainstream as dictionary.com gets it right. Amazing, right? You have all these, this is just dictionary.com for gospel. Teaching of Jesus, the story of Christ's life, that's like Matthew, Mark, Luke. Look down at number six here. Glad tidings, especially concerning salvation and the kingdom of God as announced to the world by Christ. Yes! Dictionary.com. But, but wait, it gets better. Merriam-Webster, definition 1A under gospel. The message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation. Are you kidding me? Merriam-Webster.com knows more about the gospel message, which is probably some atheist organization, I don't know, but then the Christian track league, whose job it is to preach the gospel to all the nations. It's just unbelievable, right? Every, every once in a while, I'll, I'll check again, you know, because like dictionary definitions change over time. And then I see it again, I'm like, yes, every time. <laughs> the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation. Mm. All right, so in conclusion, I want you to think of the gospel as a fork, okay? A fork has, a lot of forks have four tines, but this fork has three tines on it. Those are the little, yeah, this is the little pointy things. And I want you to think, of the three times of the gospel message fork as kingdom, cross, and resurrection. This is something I go into great detail in in the evangelism class, but this class is not about evangelism and it's not about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. This, is, this class is called kingdom of God, right? So that's what we're focusing on in this class. But look, if you're preaching the kingdom and preaching the kingdom and preaching the kingdom and you never tell them that Jesus died for their sins to be in the kingdom, look, you're just as bad as somebody that just preaches Jesus died for their sins and gets the kingdom wrong. You know what I mean? You, we, we don't want to like be so kingdom focused that we lose the cross. The cross is important, right? And the cross is literally meaningless without the resurrection. Because Rome, the Romans crucified lots of people, even the same day as Jesus, even at the same place. As Jesus, they, cru they, they crucified other people. Why don't we have 
religions based on these other characters? Well, God didn't raise them from the dead. So there's, there's nothing really to talk about, right? Josephus talks about the Jewish war and how they crucified hundreds of people every day outside of the city of Jerusalem, right? Crucifixion was, was a pretty nasty but normal way of Roman execution. Why is the cross significant? Because God raised Jesus from the dead, giving meaning to the cross that, well, why did God allow him to die if he could have saved him? Well, because he had to die for our sins. So that's what I had to say about the kingdom gospel message. And when we come back, we'll look at the kingdom way. Well, I hope you enjoyed that lecture about the gospel of the kingdom. And this is just a huge subject, and it's not well known in Christianity today, even among people who understand what the kingdom is. Integrating the message we preach with the main message of the Bible, that is that God is going to fix up this whole world and heal it, is really an important part of evangelism. Before I close out, just wanted to read a quick comment from last week on Podcast 97, The Sleep of the Dead, which was Part 6 of the Kingdom of God series. Uh, Brian writes, great lecture. I'm still not 100% convinced about soul sleep theology, more like 98% convinced. I certainly adhere to the resurrection, messianic kingdom, and subsequent world to come, olam haba, and I fully agree that we do not ascend to heaven in a celestial being-type state upon death. I was wondering if you had or possibly could produce an exegetical podcast on 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 5, 10. It's not that I struggle with this passage, but it is a difficult one to make sense of. I'd love to hear your interpretation of this passage. Thanks. Hey, Brian, I'll certainly take that under consideration. I have done work on that in the past, and I commented back on this with some links. So if any of you are likewise interested in working on 2 Corinthians 5, I put a number of links. One is to an interview I did with David Burge, uh, now deceased, but he was the leading conditional immortality expert in New Zealand some time ago, and his website is still very much active, afterlife.co.nz. And I interviewed him and basically peppered him with every difficult conditional immortality text I could think of. And you can access that on truthmattersradio.com, or if you want to just look it up on your phone or your tablet, just type in my name, Sean Finnegan, or Truth Matters, and you can find, or David Burge, B-U-R-G-E, and you can find that episode, and he does a great job explaining it. Also, I did a video many years ago on uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and it's like 20 minutes long. I put a link to it in my comment on Podcast 97, but essentially, it's, it's just like this. You've got the context around verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 5. Of course, verse 8, if you don't already know, is the one that says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And people like to look at that verse to say, oh, well, actually, the moment you die, you ascend to be with the Lord. However, if you read the context, earlier on, Paul had already said he did not want to be found naked. In other words, he didn't want to be disembodied. And he said, we would rather be absent from the body, singular, probably the body of Christ, and at home with the Lord... And then I think we're supposed to infer, presumably in a resurrected body. And so I don't think he's establishing here a platonic immortality of the soul belief. I think instead what he's doing is just expressing a wish. He's like, hey, we'd rather be away from the people and at home with the Lord or, or away from this life and at home with the Lord 
in the next life. And especially if you believe that dead people don't experience time, you can see how quickly one can get from the moment of death to the moment of resurrection with really no intervening consciousness. And so I think that's what happens a number of times in Scripture is, especially in like Philippians one twenty three and another uh, one or two other places, where the apostle just skips over that intermediate state and that's because he's not going to experience the intermediate state. He is just going to close his eyes and open them, and he's going to be with the Lord. And so, I don't know, I think the sleep of the dead makes the most sense of all the biblical data. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to episode 97, The Sleep of the Dead, because this is really an important subject. And if you think that the moment you die, you're going to heaven or hell or purgatory, then this whole gospel message of the kingdom that I've just been talking about in this episode doesn't really matter that much to you because it's just sort of like a theological footnote, an eschatological point of interest that doesn't really affect you very much because, hey, what's next for you is what you care about the most. But if you actually are going to be asleep, so then the next thing for you is the return of Jesus in the coming kingdom, then suddenly it is extremely significant. So give that some thought. I've got another few comments that are coming in, and I hope to I hope to get back to those who have been commenting. And I really appreciate the engagement. I'm looking forward to coming out with a, another interview this Sunday and then getting back into some off-script episodes with Dan and Rose. So stay tuned for that, and please share this episode on social media so other people can find it. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.